you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. LAist Studios. lonely lust of devildom. Thrust the sword through the galling fetter, all devourer, all begetter. Give me the sign of the open eye, and the token erect of thorny thigh, and the word of madness and mystery. Oh, Pan, lo, Pan, I am thy mate. I am thy man, goat of thy flock. I am gold, I am God. Flesh to thy bone, flower to thy rod. With hoofs of steel I race on the rocks, through solstice, stubborn to equinox. And I rave, and I rape, and I rip, and I rend, everlasting world without end. Lo, Pan, lo. That was a couple verses from Hymn to Pan by Alistair Crowley, Jack Parsons' favorite poem. He used to recite it before lighting the ignition on a rocket test. In this episode, what we're going to see is that Jack Parsons running around Pasadena, thrusting his sword into any fetter he can find, doesn't do him a whole lot of good. Instead, it signals his ruin. This is season one of L.A. Made, Blood, Sweat, and Rockets. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. 
Alaist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com slash events. Last time we focused on Jack Parsons, he's running a sex magic operation out of his mansion in Pasadena while having an affair with his wife's teenage half-sister. This is in his off hours, of course, when he isn't busy as Aerojet's resident chemist, figuring out new fuels for rocket engines. But Parsons' quirky behavior at home is going to make his position at Aerojet a lot less tenable. Aerojet was the corporation formed by Parsons, Foreman, Molina, Von Karman, and Martin Summerfield to build rocket engines for the military. As we heard previously, success came fast. The boys weren't just blowing stuff up on a college campus anymore. And maybe Parsons wasn't a good fit for corporate culture. He was very um, overly flirty with the women in the office and still taking risks and blowing things up. So I think he was seen as a bit of a a wild card. That's Justin Chapman, a journalist based in Pasadena. Chapman wrote a three-part series on Jack Parsons to commemorate the 70th anniversary of his death. In 1944, Aerojet gets bought by General Tire, a massive corporation, very buttoned up. Not your typical home for wayward magicians. And the sale of the company is contingent on Foreman and Parsons cashing out their stocks. Parsons was pushed out because of his occultist beliefs and his eccentricities. His black magic beliefs, sex magic beliefs were well known, and they weren't the kind of activities that someone in the button-down Pasadena community uh, would be involved in, or that was seen that way at the time. The military was wary of of Jack Parsons' affiliation, as was General Tire, which bought the the company. They just didn't want someone with that kind of background representing them. But the people who were especially wary of including Jack in the new Aerojet? The Caltech stockholders, Von Karman, Molina, Summerfield, and a few others. So Parsons leaves Aerojet and sells his shares. He's out of the company, and he loses his ties to JPL. For the first time in his life, at 30 years old, Parsons is basically cut off from the rocketry world he helped to create. Parsons still has his OTO family back at South Orange Grove Avenue, or the Parsonage, as people call it. They're still throwing wild parties with sex, drugs, and magic. But even there, the cracks are beginning to show. For example, Parsons' wife Helen is sleeping with Wilfred Smith, the head of the Agape Lodge. Wilfred Smith was another one of these father figures for Jack Parsons, and he was a mentor, like Aleister Crowley was, but uh, Aleister Crowley's living in England, uh, and they're communicating by letters, whereas Wilfred Smith was in person leading these rituals, brought Helen in and guided that process, probably with the eventual goal of going into a relationship with her. So I think this philosophy of do what thou wilt 
led to the destruction of a lot of these relationships because they, they weren't supposed to be jealous uh, if their partners were with other people. But of course, they were and uh, did resent it. So Parsons' father figure, Smith, is sleeping with Helen. Meanwhile, Parsons is sleeping with Helen's half-sister, Betty. I can't help wondering how awkward those family dinners must have been. But Parsons claimed not to be bothered. He later noted how the tabooness of it all, the whiff of incest sleeping with your wife's sibling, appealed to him. It was a magical confirmation of sorts. The OTO was very big on breaking taboos. He also supposedly told Helen, I prefer Betty sexually. This is a fact that I can do nothing about. Then one day, in August 1945, a red-haired, 30-something science fiction writer walks into Jack Parsons' world. None other than an excitable, reportedly seriously horny, L. Ron Hubbard, the future founder of Scientology. Here's Justin. Jack Parsons and L. Ron Hubbard uh, definitely hit it off in the beginning. L. Ron Hubbard was a science fiction writer before this. This is long before he founded Scientology. And Jack Parsons hosted a lot of different tenants at, at his house. And so he brought Hubbard in. And they immediately hit it off. And, and they're fencing in the, the living room and having fun. In case you missed that, I want to emphasize that they were fencing in the living room, you know, with swords. It's like Parsons' favorite poem coming true. And Jack's telling him all about OTO and these sex magic rituals and, and how to do it. And L. Ron Hubbard is fascinating him with his tales of adventure around the world, which are largely fabricated and talking about being shot by arrows by aboriginals and, and working with American intelligence during the war and, and all kinds of stuff. Now, as we know, Parsons seems endlessly eager for a male role model in his life. And Hubbard's kind of the perfect candidate. Smooth-talking, charismatic, a storyteller with all sorts of bullshit for gullible sorts. Some residents find him a total prick, but some female residents find him deeply charming. Unfortunately for Parsons and Betty, that spells the beginning of the end. Soon, L. Ron Hubbard and Betty started an affair while Betty and Jack were together. And they did it right out in the open. And all the tenants were watching it happen and like, wow, this is really awkward. And, you know, here's Jack saying free love and, and anything goes. And also getting jealous that this woman he now loved was, you know, going off with his new, new friend. Soon Parsons isn't welcome in Betty's bed anymore. Maybe this is one of the hard parts of living according to do what thou wilt. It's that other guys and girls are going to do what they wilt, too. Like when your new best friend starts giving the sign of the open eye to your girlfriend. Here's Justin. He was a generally trusting person, and I'm probably not a good judge of, of character, um, generally speaking. He was really taken by L. Ron Hubbard and his charisma and his stories of wild adventure, and probably was telling these stories were how Jack wanted his life to be. So Parsons hits a low point, maybe his lowest point. 
His mental state was just nosediving at the time. He was really having a, a difficult time professionally, emotionally, uh, in his relationships. The biggest thing was losing Betty, who he was you know, absolutely in love with. He starts experimenting with magic spells that freak people out. Even Ed Foreman, who's seen Parsons through thick and thin, can't take it. One night, after performing a black magic ritual with Parsons, Foreman feels the whole house shake and hears terrible screaming coming from the window. When he looks outside, he sees a group of banshees, female spirits that, according to Irish folklore, foretell the death of a family member. It terrified him and changed him for the rest of his life and later told his kids, like, that stuff is real. Like, don't don't mess with that stuff. It, it is terrifying. By December 1945, with Hubbard and Betty shacking up, Parsons decides he's going to magic himself a new girlfriend. The main thing that he got into at that period was what he called a Babylon working, which was a months-long, really intense series of rituals in which he was trying to conjure up in what he called an elemental mate. I don't know if you've ever tried to summon yourself a partner out of thin air. Maybe that's what dating apps are. I'm sure Parsons would have found smartphones pretty magical. No, instead, he's going to trace stars in the air and recite spells. He's going to cover the floor in papers, arcane symbols, and masturbate on them, which is said to fertilize them and help bring a new lady into his life. You can't make this stuff up. I almost wonder if Parsons found it difficult to make this stuff up. He claimed that he heard voices speaking to him, and, and so he wrote down this book called The Book of Babylon. It was similar to what you know his spiritual mentor, Aleister Crowley, did with his uh, Book of the Law, which is the foundation of this Church of Thelema that was the philosophy of the OTO. But Jack's version, the Book of Babylon, was this sort of incoherent rambling stream of consciousness uh, type of writing. Uh, like one line that he wrote, for example, was, Yea, it is even I, Babylon, and I shall be free. Thou fool, be thou also free of sentimentality. Am I thy village queen, and thou a sophomore, that thou shouldest have thy nose in my buttocks? Here's the kicker. I don't know whose nose is going into whose buttocks, but it works. In January 1946, a woman named Marjorie Cameron, 23 years old, literally shows up out of nowhere. I mean, not out of thin air. Her dad and brothers worked at Caltech. But she'd heard about the goings-on at Parsons' house and was intrigued. And practically, the day he gets back from a trip out to the desert, the Mojave Desert, where he's doing his spells, there she is. She had uh, long, flowing red hair, bright eyes. She had done a lot of traveling and had some some stories of her own. And she was an artist and, and later in life became a really respected uh, artist in the underground art scene. And she wasn't as into the black magic as Jack was, although he got her involved uh, and they started practicing voodoo and witchcraft and, and different things. Parsons basically feels like a prophet. 
the trouble is, profits need to eat, too. And running a sex-magic boarding house almost entirely on his own dime is draining Parsons' finances. It was time to make a change. Parole is our love letter to Los Angeles. We'll tell you where to get a yummy torta, a bowl of kanji, and of course, a burger. It's a beef sausage blend, fried egg, grilled onions, and then raspberry jam. What hiking trails to check out. This feels like we're out in the mountains. And where to take in some culture. Lumert Park, they've been fostering jazz for decades. LA's a big place with a lot going on. So we got you. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com slash events. See you there. It's the spring of 1946. Jack Parsons is feeling vulnerable, particularly on a financial level. He's out of the rocketry world. He's not working. All the partying at the Parsonage, as his home is called, is hemorrhaging cash. He needs to get his affairs in order. And maybe at this point, Mr. L. Ron Hubbard detects some vulnerability. Maybe Parsons tells him as much. He still thinks of Hubbard as his best friend, despite his stealing Betty away. So perhaps Hubbard decides it's a good time to strike. Here's Justin. Elron Hubbard and Betty somehow convinced Jack to form a company called Allied Enterprises, in which all three of them would pool all of their resources. And so Jack put in $21,000, largely from his, his selling share, the shares of Aerojet, L. Ron Hubbard put in like one or two thousand dollars and Betty put in nothing. And somehow they talked him into doing that. And they came up with this plan that they would use the money, uh, L. Ron Hubbard and Betty, they'd go to Miami and buy some yachts and sail them back to Los Angeles and sell them at a marked up price. And then they'd all make a lot more money. It's just the weirdest plan. But in April 1946, Ronnie Boy and Betty take off for Florida, leaving Parsons to tend the home fires. Hubbard and Betty go to Florida, and Jack doesn't hear from them for a while. And he's, at first, he, he's like telling people, no, no, they, they wouldn't do that to me. But eventually he realizes, Alistair Crowley steps in and says, look, dude, you're getting, you're, you're getting conned here. Um, and he goes, okay. So I, with what money he had left, he flew out to Miami. He got a court to put an injunction on the Elron Hubbard and Betty not to sail out on these yachts. They had, bought, they had purchased one or two yachts. They went sailing out anyway, and so Jack in his hotel room performed a black magic ritual and summoned Bartzabel, which is the this demon god from Mars. Here's part of a letter Parsons writes to Alistair Crowley on July 5th after summoning the demon god in question. Here I am in Miami, pursuing the children of my folly. Hubbard attempted to escape me by sailing at 5 p.m., 
So far as I can check, his ship was struck by a sudden squall off the coast, which ripped off his sails and forced him back to port, where I took the boat in custody. I have them well tied up. They cannot move without going to jail. However, I'm afraid that most of the money has already been dissipated. They went to court and, and Jack got a judge to make L. Ron Hubbard pay him $2,900 or $3,000. So he didn't get all of it. And it seemed to be because Betty threatened to tell the, the court that they had a relationship when she was underage. And so she used that against him at, at that point. And so he backed off and just it just cut, you know, to cut his losses and, and left. And he never saw them, either of them again. So it obviously was a con. And, you know, that that's one of the sad things about Jack's story is that in looking for these father figures, he fell into these vulnerable situations and allowed people to take advantage of him um, when he's financially supporting people and giving them a place to live. Parsons returns to Pasadena solo. Ron and Betty, however, stay together long enough for Hubbard to create Dianetics, which becomes Scientology. Years later, in 1969, the Church of Scientology issued a statement in the Sunday Times in London. It claimed the U.S. Navy sent Hubbard to Orange Grove Avenue to break up black magic in America. It reads, quote, L. Ron Hubbard was still an officer of the U.S. Navy because he was well-known as a writer and philosopher and had friends amongst the physicists. He was sent in to handle the situation. He went to live at the house and investigated the black magic rites and the general situation and found them very bad. Hubbard's mission was successful far beyond anyone's expectations. The house was torn down. Hubbard rescued a girl they were using. The black magic group was dispersed and destroyed and has never recovered, close quote. Maybe Hubbard couldn't hold on to Betty, but I hope he kept the PR team that spun that story. Anyway, Parsons goes back to Pasadena and never sees them again. Instead, he retires officially from the OTO, sells the mansion, kicks out the motley crew of tenants he recruited. His new mission is to restart his career in aerospace. He and Marjorie Cameron move to Manhattan Beach. Parsons is able to find explosives and rocketry work to pay his bills. Months later, he writes to Crowley. It has been almost a year since I last wrote. At that time, I was near mental and financial collapse. Since that time, I have gained some sort of mental equilibrium and gradually regained something of a position working in my old field in a large aircraft company. My aim is to rebuild myself. Eventually, he's able to land a position with the Hughes Aircraft Company in Culver City. By March 1950, his title is Group Leader in Charge of Propellants, Propulsion, and Launching Group of the Research and Development Laboratories. Imagine putting that on a nameplate. Unfortunately for Parsons, it doesn't last. Working in rocketry, working on classified government contracts, a lot of secret documents pass through your hands. 
technical specifications, weaponry systems. If you don't have access to the files necessary to do your work, it's nearly impossible to get anything done. So the last thing you want to do is have your security clearance revoked. But as the Red Scare ramps up, the government's looking for every excuse to revoke your clearance. They're investigating anybody even slightly left of center. And remember, Parsons had been at that reading group with Molina and Chen. He'd done his own dabbling of sorts with communism, even if it was just as a dilettante in his student days. Parsons saw the writing on the wall for misfits like him. He was trying to leave the U.S. and move to another country that he saw as more progressive because he believed all this Red Scare environment infringing on what he saw as an ideal of freedom. And he reached out to von Karman again. Theodore von Karman, the former president of Aerojet. Who put him in touch uh, with Herbert Rosenfeld, who was the head of the L.A. chapter of the American Technion Society, which helped facilitate the transfer of technological know-how from the U.S. to the burgeoning state of Israel at the time. And Jack's plan was to uh, help Israel develop a rocketry program and move to, to Israel long term. And so in order to do that, the Technion Society wanted him to put together a list of costs for the rocketry program and a number of other related technical documents. So Parsons has been storing papers at work Papers he wrote back at Aerojet, at Galsit, a lot of them were classified. He asked the secretary it used to type up some copies, and she freaks out and calls the FBI, basically saying he's passing government secrets to foreign spies. He said, I was going to clear it with the State Department after these copies were typed up. You know, it, it, back in the Galsit, Caltech days, you know, the storage of documents was a little looser, and he probably had documents at his house and made copies when they're creating Aerojet. But he was, he was also careless in that regard, which fed into this image of him as, as not responsible for a proper job in a field like rocketry. Parsons loses his security clearance permanently. He's fired from Hughes. The Industrial Employment Review Board says, you are not responsible enough to have access to this information. You can't work in national defense work anymore. I'm honestly tempted to feel bad for the guy. If it weren't for the fact that while he's being grilled by the FBI, Parsons lets slip that there might have been some crossover back in the day between communist activity, and a former colleague back at Aerojet, Frank Molina. That's next time on Blood, Sweat, and Rockets. L.A. Made, Blood, Sweat, and Rockets is hosted by me, M.G. Lord. The show is a production of L.A. Studios in collaboration with Western Sound. Shana Naomi Krokmal is our vice president of podcasts, and Antonia Sarahito is the executive producer for L.A. Studios. Ben Adair is the executive producer for Western Sound. Dan Leone is the showrunner. Producers are Savannah Wright, Tyler Hill, Caitlin Parker, and Becky Nicolaitis. The show is written by Rachel Knowles, Rosecrans Baldwin, and me, M.G. Lord. It was edited by Savannah Wright. Sound design by Tyler Hill. Mixing and mastering by Tom McLean. Research and consulting by History Studio. 
Our website at Aleas.com is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital marketing teams at Aleas Studios. The marketing team of Aleas Studios created our branding. Thanks to the team at Aleas Studios, including Taylor Kaufman, Sabir Brara, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, Andy Orozco, Michael Cosentino, and Leo G. L.A. Made, Blood, Sweat, and Rockets is a production of Elias Studios. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.